1 Corinthians warned you about the women with a loud mouth, and this podcast is just that. Here at the Speaking in Church podcast, we talk all about the regular people and the things that regularly happen to them in the evangelical church. It's a podcast about change. It's a podcast about seeking moral high ground. And it's a podcast for people who are just trying to deconstruct on the safe side. You can listen wherever you get your podcast, And if you want to be a guest, yes, you, regular person, you can be a guest on the Speaking in Church podcast. If you want to come on, just let us know. Hi friends, this is Sarah, one of the co-hosts of the Recovery Podcast, and I am excited to introduce to you today's conversation with Megan Crozier. Megan is from the Thereafter Podcast, and we talk about all kinds of things in this conversation. Not just transitioning from a religious community, but what does it mean to transition as a teacher from being someone who's in a classroom to being someone who helps resource other teachers? All of these transitions have led to her wanting to help others make space for their own transitions and exposing them to all kinds of varying opinions. So we talk a little bit about an upcoming content warning conference, that's the name of it, content warning conference, that she is helping to facilitate along with our own Justin Gentry. This is a fantastic conversation, and it really is about how do we make space for our own transitions and make space for others as they do the same. So I hope you enjoy it. Hi, friends, and welcome to another episode of Recovery. I am one of your hosts, Sarah Heath, and this is my co-host. Justin Gentry. <laughs> and Recovery is a podcast for folks who are changing. Maybe they're changing their careers. Maybe they're going from being a pastor to no longer being a pastor. Maybe you're going from being a volunteer to no longer being a volunteer. Maybe you're just shifting the way you think about church community. Whatever it is, we welcome you here to the Recovery Room. We are so excited today because we have a fellow podcaster with us, uh, Megan, who is part of the Thereafter podcast. We are so excited to have you here. A friend of ours that we've met in real life, which I feel like in the podcasting world is such a rarity. Uh, When we see people at events, it's like, oh my gosh, you have legs. I'm so used to just seeing you in a tiny little box. Um, So it's so good to see you, Megan. Megan, we always start with a question. How long were you in and what were you in for? And usually we mean, how long did you serve in ministry? But how long were you part of a church community? Tell us a little bit of your story and how you became one of the co-hosts of Thereafter, if you don't mind. Yeah, Whew, there's a lot to unpack. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Um, <laughs> well, I will say this. So I, I'm, I became a teacher. I didn't become a full-time person in ministry. But one of the reasons that I chose that path is because I was my undergrad degree was in Spanish and youth ministry. And I was a full-time youth leader as an intern, as all of those things in undergrad. And then I was graduating. I was in Chicago. I was on the west side of Chicago involved with a bilingual church. And I was graduating and they wanted me to come on full-time as a volunteer. <laughs> I was like, I... I need to work, but, uh, and I looked into like mission organizations that would allow me to be like a missionary, but domestically. And, and I have talked about this in other places, but I had also looked into becoming a missionary overseas in Ecuador and just nothing panned out. And so I became a substitute teacher and a waitress and went back to school and got a teaching degree and became a bilingual teacher. And, and so my 
like involvement in church was always, you know, I was still, church was part of my life, but I, it was a very long time before I accepted that that was a legitimate path because I always thought I was a failure for not living up to this pledge that I had signed at Urbana 2000 to become a missionary after I graduated college, you know, that I know it's like purity pledges, but for vocation. (laughs) You deconstructed ministry immediately, I guess. Well, and the weird part of that is that I did like, so that there was that and a couple things that happened towards the end of, because I went to a Christian college and I walked away from the church for like two years and then I came back and I had like these two wild years. I sowed my oats or whatever that expression is and then came back and thought, oh, well, that was like my rebellion and now I'm just dedicated. And so that was, I mean, I always was trying to figure out how to make my faith my life while I was doing this like public school teacher vocation. You know what I mean? Oof. I mean, you were you were trying so earnestly. <laughs> I, I, yes, I was. I'm an Enneagram one. I just give me some rules and and give me a, a place to spiral on how badly I'm not following all of those rules to perfection. And there you have it. The church was a perfect fit, and so was teaching, I guess. And how long, so you you didn't go into full-time ministry, but you were part of a church community that was at least part of Urbana, 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 is it Urbana, is it Urbana? We say Urbana. (laughs) Well, Urbana, so that's, it's connected with InterVarsity, and so that was, that was something that was just like through my college, I was part of the university ministry team on my, at my college campus. And so that's how I went, ended up there. But then I moved around a lot. And so, cause I, I lived in Chicago for a while and then I lived in uh, Washington and Oregon and back in Washington and church was always the way that I would seek community with all of those moves. Yeah. It's like kind of the standard thing of people, what people tell us they miss too, is like trying to figure out how to find community outside of uh, the church world. So it's like, it doesn't matter what vocation they have almost. It's like, we are always looking for that, like that, that community thing. Cause we're almost taught that like, we can only have community within church, right? Especially if you went to a Christian college, right? Cause you don't know how to tie like college community separate from church community. Yeah. And I think I remember having a, a clubhouse chat about finding community and somebody, somebody said, it's almost like we lose our muscle memory for making friends when we have that yes. built in to church places. Right. And so it is, it's kind of an interesting thing, but what I think is really interesting and I don't want to jump ahead too far, but I was a teacher for 15 years and I have connected so much with the things that you guys talk about on recovery in my leaving teaching because I think there's so much overlap with how much your identity is so much of, of what, of what you are when you, when you are in ministry and when you are a teacher and you get onto this pathway that you're like, this is, I'm, I'm never going to do anything else. And then when you start to consider doing something else, you're like, wait a second, what, what am I left with kind of thing? Well, it's also like the idea of like a quote unquote good career. And by that, I don't just mean like one that's like stable, but one that most of the world regards as good, right? Like a a Mm -hmm. woman being a teacher is considered like the ultimate, you know, it's often the story in, you know, it's a nurse or a teacher, right? When you're, when you were a kid and books weren't as diverse as they are now, thank gosh, but so many of them were, right? They were teachers or they were, um, nurses. And it really shifted, but I feel like there is this thing, like 
it's considered a really good and noble career, right? We need teachers. We need, especially if you're a bright kid, that's kind of like one of the, one of the paths you're supposed to go to. So I think oftentimes leaving ministry and leaving teaching is leaving this thing that everyone else views as good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, yeah. Oh, did you have something, Justin? That you yeah. I, well, I think it's, it's, uh, they're very similar in that they're, they're jobs that become your life. They're jobs that you, if you, if you don't have a union, which ministers have no union and a lot of teachers have no union, you're not paid what you're worth. At, at all, or you have to fight to be recognized as having your job having value. You know, like teachers is like, oh, you only work part of the day, or oh, like anyone can play with kids. And with ministers, it's like you only work once once a week. Like you yeah, only work on like, Sunday. Used to be my family's favorite yeah. joke is like, you only work an hour a week or two hours a week if you're preaching twice. Like, yeah. Uh, and you have the summers off when you're a teacher. It's like, oh, you get all of these holidays and vacation and the summers off. And it, it, that's the narrative that gets turned around. So it's, like, it's a but, job that everyone thinks they know what it is, um, yeah. maybe even more than you do. And and so it's like everyone seems to be an expert on your job. And you get put, put in this like odd kind of place where you're like, uh, no, no I, I, do, I do work a lot. And I'm not getting paid enough. I'm not getting recognized. Well, and I think that's where everything came to a head during the pandemic, mm-hmm. right? Oh my because gosh. We were we you know, I I said I was I was married at the time and my partner's job at the time like just shifted to like being upstairs and doing the exact same work but doing it upstairs. And my job changed dramatically overnight in so many ways. And it was like the whole like building the plane while we're flying it thing where we didn't even know kind of what we were doing, but we were trying to just or how long it would last. And I think that's the other thing. It's not like, oh, this has dramatically shifted and this is how it's always going to be. It's like, oh, this might have dramatically shifted for this week. I remember in the start of it, two of my best friends are teachers. And it was like, I think we'll be in person next week. Well, I think we're going to be in person next week. And we as pastors, we're saying the same thing. Like, we're not going to have church yeah. in person this week, but probably next week. And it's really hard to like structure and plan something when you have no idea what, because it's not the same thing. Like teaching kids in person is very different than teaching them online. I think a lot of parents, hopefully a lot of parents started to value. Did you feel like people started to shift and see more of the value in teaching because they were having to do some of it? Well, there were a couple of things, right? I think initially it it was kind of like we were all just in the trauma cloud of what's happening, every, you know, everyone, the whole world, right? And then that's one of the things that became a really hard thing about teaching because we started to get to a point where every week the, the governor had kind of like we had been out of school, you know, since March 2020. It was getting to be, you know, January of 2021, people were like antsy, when when are we going to get back to school? And there started to be a lot of rhetoric in the community, like teachers are lazy, people have to work, people have to go in person, like we have to find something, like we've got to work, we've got to get our kids. And there was happening so fast that at the same time, there were like websites and articles being shared on like teacher boards that were like, these are the teachers that have died because they went back in person too soon from COVID. Right. And so it's like they, there wasn't a vaccination yet and they're trying to fast forward everything. And they're like watching the numbers, the community numbers. And at, at they just reached a point where they were like, okay, the community numbers are of COVID are beyond 
what we said we would have to open back up schools, but it's just time. And then they opened schools and that's when I like fell apart. And I remember I was like, I was binge watching um, Chicago Fire at the time. And I remember thinking like, I don't know if I could die for my job. Like these people, like they signed up for this risk (laughs) and I don't know if I could do this. Yeah, you're doing not what you're planning on. I mean, in America, there's now a lot of stuff going on that makes us being a teacher, a very dangerous job. Exactly. And that was happening too. Right. And so, and like, so yeah, both of those things are happening. And I was just reevaluating the whole thing. Cause I was like, as we were talking about going in and we're talking about, okay, how are we going to make everything sanitized? I taught first grade. I taught it in Spanish. Right. And so we were like trying to figure out how we're going to get all the academic content, but also sanitize, make sure the kids are washing their hands, make sure they're doing everything the right way. And we weren't vaccinated yet. And and I had this this weird experience of living on the border between Oregon and Washington. And Oregon was waiting to send all their teachers back until the vaccination hit teachers. And I had taught in Oregon and all my friends were like, no, we're waiting. And then in Washington, they were like, no, we're going back next week. And I, I, I stayed remote the rest of that year, but I was absolutely shamed by my colleagues for it. I was shamed by my administration for it. And at the end of the year, I took a leave because I was like, I don't know what's next, but I can't do this anymore. I was my, my I was at my breaking point. Okay, that's fascinating. So you could stay and teach remotely, but it was your choice. Well, it we could put in the request, and so I had a person on my team in my school that had less seniority than me that also put in the request and got bumped and just had to take unpaid time oh, until it or go in, and so it was like. Yes, I did that, but other people suffered because of that. And so, I mean, there was just a lot of dynamics that were happening that was like, just everything was lose-lose. And I, I got an email from my colleague that was like, you not going in person, you're you're not there for the kids, you're, you're not giving them the sense of stability that they need. Like people are trying to say like, you have to step up. And I was like, I have stepped up to my limit. I have stepped up and stepped up and stepped up. I can't, I can't anymore. I just like, I, I was, I was like teaching on zoom in the mornings and shutting my computer and just sobbing in the afternoons. Like I just was so depressed. I was not in a place. And you're a mom at that point as well. Absolutely. I had a kindergartner and a second grader in my, in my house. Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. So, yeah. They're learning with, from, with another teacher, you know, <laughs> while you're mm-hmm. trying to teach all these other kids. Like, I, and I remember because I, I had a job that was remote before the pandemic. And then when the pandemic hit, my, you know, now 10-year-old, we became office buddies, you know, which is a cute thing to say. But then, like, the reality of being an office buddy with, a, with at the time, six-year-old is just not, no. Like, and she would get done. It was funny because she actually kind of started liking it because she could get done around, like, 2 o'clock or 1 o'clock with her work. And then she's like, all right, dad, I'm going to go play <laughs> like, oh, OK, this is weird. I, like, what is going on? So, yeah, you're dealing with all these other dynamics. You're doing it in another language and you're being, you know, and and I think a lot of corporate America, a lot of pastors received a certain level of shame when they didn't go back soon enough. But like, I I do feel like mm-hmm. I, I'm there wasn't as much rhetoric in my community, but there was that kind of in the air of like teachers just need to do their jobs. And it's like, that's no, like, and unfortunately, we had a president at the time and a department of education at the time that did not offer 
like any kind of guidelines. Cause like my community basically created an online school for parents and teachers that didn't want to go back, you know, like it was, yeah. it was basically like, and, and, and which was fine. And, um, the year when Claire went back in, I don't know if it was 2021 or 2022, I literally don't remember anymore. <laughs> like, <laughs> Who, Who can say when she went back? Who um, <laughs> it it was uh yeah there was there was some of her friends that just chose not to go back because they they had that option but it's but not every school district had that and so it was just it was chaos for sure. Well, and so I also you... need to say sorry. I I just want to say one other thing is that I had yeah. trauma from so like in February of 2021 when we went back and. I asked to stay remote. It happened so quickly. We were not prepared. We found out like on a Monday that we were going back and we were back the next Monday and we just had not, nobody had been in their classrooms. Nobody had set things up. It was just so fast. And so that week, all that week, I thought that I was teaching first grade. I thought I would have first graders from a couple different schools in the district and I would just continue with my students and maybe a few more. And that Friday afternoon, before we went back, the weekend before we went back, I found out I lost my class. I was going to teach third, fourth, and fifth grade, and I didn't have access to those families anymore. And I had spent that entire year building solid relationships, like taking oh, desks no. to their houses, playing like different games in their front yards to try to get to know the students, like social distancing. And, and like that alone, it said something about the way my school district was kind of approaching this whole thing. Um, and it also like it just tore me to pieces. And as a teacher, that that's my priority is like connecting and social emotional learning. I I had to un heal from that trauma months later when I realized, oh, oh, this was traumatic for me. Yeah, I cannot imagine like you spent this time getting to know these kids and you didn't even really get to say goodbye. Yeah. Mm. Or like explain to them anything. And that's I'm imagining in some ways that was traumatic for the kids, too. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah. The shift. No. So you you went through that. It was a lot. I think many of our listeners can relate, no matter what field they were in, whether they left ministry Absolutely. or they left teaching or they left. I mean, we, it's across the board, honestly. Um, we had a meetup today of um, fans and it was fans. I don't even like to. Our only fans. Members who are awesome. <laughs> our only fans. Our fans only. I don't know what that is. They they're from all over and all over different professions. And I, I think most people can relate to at least in the last couple of years, having a serious sit down with yourself and saying it, what am I doing? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And is this the direction I want my life to go in? So 100%. you did that. And then how have things shifted? And then how, tell to us too about like becoming part of thereafter and how that all fits in. If you don't mind. I know that's a big, yeah, it's a big question. Your Take faith it where was you doing want. just fine during this season. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no. yeah, I bet. I had this weird, something weird happened when the pandemic started. I, it was like my faith got much, much stronger initially. And then it totally fell to pieces. And I probably, because I was like, like, it, you know how the closer you get to it, the more you start to realize like, Ooh, I, I don't know about this. But, um, I kind I, so I started writing a memoir like on the side, cause I was like processing my life and I was processing, you know, how I got to this career and, and all of these different things. And at the same time, I was questioning a lot of things. I was, I, my, this memoir and the, this writing kind of made me face like, those two years that I had left the church that I had carried shame for. And I was like, wait a second, I actually was living my actual life the way that I wanted to, you know, different things like Turns that. Out. 
Yeah. And so I'm like getting up to things that I'm uncomfortable with about my faith. I'm also trying to figure out like my career path. And then I'm starting to wonder, like part of me questioning my career path had me face some issues with like gender roles and, and who's carrying, who's, who's the default vocation in a partnership. Right. And like mine had always been the stable one. And that had just been, I was a teacher. That's who I was. And so I had people in my life, like, have you talked to your husband about changing careers? Is that his, like, do you have his permission? And I'm like, I was like, I feel like I'm in a, Mm -hmm. like a box trying to get out and screaming to be heard. And it was, it was a long time of me over and over fighting for myself to say like, I I don't know exactly what it is, but I cannot do this. And I have people say like, but this is who you are. This is what makes you happy. This is you. And I'm like, this is who you are. This is who you are. I mean, I think anyone can relate to that. I know you as this thing. So I need you to stay this thing. Because if you become something else, then like, I have to like, I have to think about the things that I've, that I am, that maybe I don't like Like The potential of me. Right, or, changing or I'm used to relating to you in this way, and I might have to relate to you differently, or or as an equal. Like, and that's yeah. When you're it, it kind of you realize the kind of like social web you're in when you start to question things and start to move a little bit, and and it the people that come out of the woodwork to be like, no, like this is who you are, and I need you to be whatever. I mean, that's that's a theme in our discord amongst folks that are leaving ministry because it's like I, I it's like I've decided inside to leave. But I also know the pain I'm going to cause when I make that announcement. And I, I realize there's a social cost to that. And I think I, I, I well, and teachers, I think, mm-hmm. are the same, yeah. right? Like. Because it's a community job. Yeah, right? usually. Yeah. And I think, well, and I, I haven't even said about thereafter, but I'll just say this, like. I had, so I'll get to that piece in a minute, but I had slowly been following this, this Instagram, I I don't know, influencer. I don't know. She was teacher career coach. And it was like this whisper that some of us had like, Hey, go follow this teacher career coach. She helps teachers move into new, new careers or different careers. It's, it's a lot like what you guys do, but specifically for teachers. Right. And so she, That's so I had, funny. my friends who are teachers have made me watch this. That's so yes. Fun. Yeah. When she went, I saw her during the pandemic go from like 15,000 followers to like 130. Cause it was like, she had, it, I mean, everybody was looking for that at the time. And so that happened, but then I was trying to like figure out, am I going to pitch this memoir? I had a couple connections from some old professors at my college that um, sent it on to Zondervan for me. I was so naive. I was a very evangelical memoir. I look back and sometimes I think I could just write another book that's deconstructing my my memoir. But um, that's when I joined Twitter and I started like co-hosting clubhouse chats. And I that's how I met Cortland. And, and it was like, it was this merge of like longing for community, longing for the deconstruction conversations. Those like when you're first deconstructing, you're like, I need all of this. I, this is, I'm hungry for these conversations. And then at the time, um, Cortland asked me to be a guest on thereafter. And then it, that was his first season and he didn't continue on with his co-host. And so we had connected and, and um, he asked me to be his co-host. And then the topics of, tell us a little bit about the topics of thereafter. Because you're like deconstructing, not just like 
not just your career, you're deconstructing also some things around your fit. I mean, that's a lot of things. So what is the content of the, of thereafter for folks who don't know it? Well, it started of just like people telling their deconstruction stories and, um, and really our aim and intention was to get diverse perspectives, um, and be really intentional about that. And, and really the, the philosophy behind that, it, it was mostly, cause I think some people are like, you know, I'm going to have, have diverse perspectives so that it can like look good on my Instagram feed or whatever. And it's like, no, like we're, our philosophy and our approach is like, if you don't have all of the perspectives at the room, you're just missing at the table, you're just missing out. Mm -hmm. Right. And so we were like, what are the perspectives we're missing out on? What are the things we don't have here? And so we would come up with something that was on Twitter, like Christian supremacy or the anti-Semitism or, you know, purity culture. And, and start to get into like a, a, we moved away from those in, you know guest stories and started to get into more topical pieces um, and and kind of as they were discussions that were happening online and discussions we were having in Clubhouse and that I mean I think that's a, a big piece of what Cortland and I do is beyond the podcast our aim is to really build community and have that we have weekly Clubhouse chats we have you know, different times we've had some meetups, you know, casual, we're, we're having an event in February. So, I mean, I think that's a piece of it that it's like, it's the podcast is great, but it's the community that happens kind of on the outside of it too. So you kind of created the thing that you needed mm-hmm. is kind of what I'm hearing. Like the, the, the sense that you needed, I need community. None of this is fitting for me. I'm like secretly underground watching people who have switched their careers, trying to figure out how to do that. And then you, you yourself did do that, right? You made a shift from being an in-classroom teacher to basically helping resource teachers, right? Yeah. So, well, here's the wild part. So I, when I was at that crossroads, I was like, am I, am I going to be able, should I, should I try to make a career somehow in this, what's happening, what's exploding on social media? Like I thought about becoming some kind of coach. I thought about, you know, and I, and we had this interview with Janice Legata and it stuck with me forever. And it, I mean, she really, she's amazing, mm-hmm. but she talked about like building a, a career that depends on traumatized people being in that space. And it was so powerful because I was like, oh yeah, you know, and, and it, it made me kind of just kind of reorient. Like I, this is, that sounds like Janet. She's so great. <laughs> yeah. yeah, she is. And, and, and it made me kind of see like this podcast stuff, like this is part of me, but it's not who I am either. And so what I did is I, I did find another, I, I did shift and find a, find, found a job in education. I found this really great fit at the time. And I've, I've even moved on from that. But I worked for a community college for a year. They were building a four-year program for teacher education. They hired me to create the program and teach in the program, too. I still adjunct for them. And I loved that. It was a great shift. And then I moved into, I work at a curriculum company now. And I, I travel, I train teachers. And so it's, I kind of moved into the corporate world on the education side. And I love that I can still be part of that because it is a huge passion of mine. And I see so much overlap when it comes to the trauma. Because that was kind of my jam as a teacher, like understanding how to be trauma-informed, teaching kids social-emotional skills and those pieces. And I feel like that trauma lens has carried so much into all of these deconstruction conversations. I love that. I mean, that's so helpful. And I think it's funny, Justin and I accidentally talk about this idea of building a career on traumatized mm-hmm. folk and how like that is not anything. We are not 
we don't want to be only only that. We don't we want to be a, a soft place for folks to land, but but be creating something, something generative, not just deconstructing things, making something, um, helping people create something for themselves, like which is the the trauma piece is so key and recognizing like, yeah, I, I think for me, the ministry that I did in the last five years of my ministry was predominantly for folks who were had some church trauma. And um, what you realize is it can it can really be harmful in that you are constantly running up against people's trauma. And it is very difficult to create a community of just traumatized folks that feel cared for uh, because there's always going to be trauma activating things that you aren't even aware of. And so you can create, you know, the word, the buzzword that I think is really helpful is like a brave space, but you can't create a safe space. And that's really, really draining work. And, and, and you do feel that sense of like, I don't want to be something else that can be seen as manipulative. And so I think it's the both and, right? Like I would love to be there for folks in that, but my whole career cannot be that for me. And for some people, that's not the case. Like working with traumatized people is their absolute giftedness. Um, I found myself running into difficult situations again and again and again, and finding it really difficult to maintain, yeah, my own sense of balance within it. And so I think Janice is wise about like building an audience and building a career around traumatized people is really difficult for them. And it's really difficult for you as well. And just to be aware of that, even if you don't realize you're doing it, like asking people for money to support you when you're doing something like, uh, like folks who work for YWAM or whatever it might be, who like there, there is some mm-hmm. activation around money, even there's all this stuff. And I, I, yeah, I hear you. And like, yeah, that's not what I wanted to do. I wanted to find a way to sort of have a career that I could do and then a way that I can serve those folks. And that's sort of what you've been able to do, it seems like, a little bit. Yeah. Along those lines, I'm going to make you guys talk about it. You guys are both working on this thing. Talking about well, trauma. By the way, at the start of the show, we were talking about the things. We were gonna, go ahead. You, no, you finished. Go ahead. And then I'm going to segue. I was just going to say, oh, I'm excited. Uh, I was just going to say, Along those lines of uh, trauma, we were talking about um, event. I did not realize what we were talking about earlier, and they were like, "Hey, we're gonna do. We're, we are gonna do talk about content warning." And I was like, "Oh, what's the content we need to warn about?" Oh, now I know what it is. So, <laughs> content warning is actually the name of the incredible conference that you guys are trying. You're putting together, not trying to put together. You are putting together, and so I'd love to talk a little bit about that because I think it does. It talks about this idea of um, caring for people who are who have gone through trauma and who are maybe affected by things they're not even aware mm-hmm. they're affected by. So is that what you're going to segue well, into? Justin, what I was going to do is I was going to have you different. tee it up, which you did amazingly. <gasps> and then I was going to say, we're going to take a break. We're going to take a break, aren't we? <laughs> and then right. we're going to be back with a word from this episode's sponsor. And then we're going to talk about content warning. Oh my gosh, guys, get ready. We're going to have a, you're being warned that you're going yes. to be warned. <laughs> Very excited. All right, we'll Perfect. see you back. First Corinthians warned you about the women with a loud mouth, and this podcast is just that. Here at the Speaking in Church podcast, we talk all about the regular people and the things that regularly happen to them in the evangelical church. 
It's a podcast about change. It's a podcast about seeking moral high ground. And it's a podcast for people who are just trying to deconstruct on the safe side. You can listen wherever you get your podcast, And if you want to be a guest, yes, you, regular person, you can be a guest on the Speaking in Church podcast. If you want to come on, just let us know. Justin, can you tell us about the sponsor of this week's episode? I, I certainly can. So uh, the sponsor this week of this episode is the Our Bible app, uh, the Our 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 Bible app. Sorry, I've Our. see this is where my various accents and upbringing conspire against me. The word "our" mm, is just is it's hard. hard for me. It's an excellent app though, uh, but the O U R Bible app, <laughs> not the R Bible app, uh, is. It's a fantastic app. And you have probably, if you were a Christian for a while, you probably had a Bible app, like, I don't know, Bible app, U version, whatever. Like, (laughs) no, this isn't the U version. This is our version. Okay. Um, And, (laughs) and I, I love this app for a number of reasons, but it, for, it's really for those that have questioned, like, where do you fit in the Christian community? Do you even fit in the Christian community? And because Christianity, people want to distance themselves from it sometimes, or you get in that thing where you're like, I'm a Christian, but then you have to give like a 12 page dissertation on what kind of Christian you are. And, you know, or if you're like me, you're just tired and you say you're agnostic because there's no questions then. Like, it's just, I'm agnostic. Oh, okay wherever you are, if you're craving any kind of community or you just want some way to 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 gain an understanding of the Bible that isn't toxic, that isn't that doesn't have all the baggage, the Our Bible app is there for you. Uh, you can explore a community that is sex positive, anti-racist, feminist, affirming of LGBTQIA people, interfaith and social justice oriented. People that have been guests on this show have been contributors to the Our Bible app and the com- growing community of people that are contributing devotionals and writings and things that aren't going to make you squirm, aren't going to make you uncomfortable, or maybe they make you uncomfortable in the right ways, not in the cringe ways. So Download, subscribe, and ditch all the toxic theology. The Our Bible app is for believers or unbelievers of all stripes. Um, And we're so happy to be partnering with them. And uh, also, the founder of the Our Bible app, Crystal, will be at the content warning event that Megan is getting ready to talk about. (laughs) I love it because even when you say content warning of our event, it makes it sound like your event is the content that we need to warn folks about. So the event is called Content Warning. There is a content warning just generally uh, because it's uh, <laughs> it's an event about purity culture and whatnot. But uh, I'm going to have Megan can explain more about the event. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so we did an event back in June of uh, 2022 and it was we had 10 collaborators. We did it in the side room of a bar and had about 60 people come and it was incredible. And it was just this beautiful space and it was very unique, very different. And we thought, okay, this this seems like something people are craving and let's do more of this and let's you know be methodical and plan it out. And one of the things that I've been coming up against in deconstruction is I feel like folks, there's this spectrum when it comes to deconstructing purity culture, especially where you reach people's limits on inclusivity, right? And so it's like you start to have a conversation about, you know, oh yeah, you know, I'm deconstructing because I want to be queer affirming and my church isn't queer affirming. And then it's like, okay, 
well, now I have non-monogamous friends. Um, do, do they fit into the conversation? And, and some people are like, yes. And some people are like, no. Or you'll see these folks that I wouldn't even call them part of the deconstruction space, but there's like, there's, you know, talking back to purity culture. You'll, you'll find people that are like, quote unquote, purity, post purity culture influencers that really like want to, you know, combat the shame that we found in purity culture, but then still really preach this quote unquote biblical sexual ethic of abstinence. And which I believe is the baseline harmful part of purity culture. Like you just like, once you start prescripting people's sexual ethic and saying that it's biblical, you're just handing trauma to people. And so I just have been wanting to move that conversation forward and be able to create a space that's inclusive of everyone. And so I just, you know, reached out to a bunch of folks and started to kind of dream up this idea and content warning. The name of it is, is kind of just a play on, Ooh, we're talking about the things that people don't want to talk about. Of course, you know, we, I, I want to honor and recognize the way that that phrase is used to definitely, um, in, in trauma, you know, people that are experiencing trauma and, and making sure that people are able to navigate activation and things like that. And that's still part of it. But I also just am kind of saying, Hey, we're going to talk about the things that people only still talk about in the shadows, even in these progressive spaces like ethical porn, like non-monogamy, you know, like sex work and things like that. And, and also talking about sexual ethics and sex and relationships after, after purity culture. And so it's, it's not, we're moving away from like the trauma that was purity culture. That's of course part of it, but like, we're moving into like, you were saying, Sarah, this, like, what can we like these generative pieces where it's like, okay, how can we have, you know, new life on the other side of, of deconstruction and how can we develop our ethics and and really learn and be inclusive and not kind of create the harm that happened in purity culture on the other side if we're if we're drawing lines and closing doors on people if that makes Mm -hmm. sense that's interesting so it's like coming up against a wall that is okay now that i now that i'm here i don't know that if i can go here or this next thing or what do i do with this thing and so it's creating an ethic or helping people sort of think through their ethic is that sort of the idea like allowing them well, to hear from yeah. folk within. I think also in if you're raised if you were raised evangelical, you don't know how to have ethics. Like, and that, mm. that's not to say that evangelicals have no ethics, although many of them do not. But you don't know how to create an ethic, especially when it's like not tied to a two thousand year old book. Like, you know, like it's. I and I remember like running into problems as a Christian that were ethical situations that weren't prescribed by the Bible and like the weird, like bibliomancy, like close your eyes, point to a verse and like kind of try to make it fit to like, you know, and then like once you kind of like, okay, I'm going to ditch toxic theology, you know, like how do I determine what, I think, I think it's actually a genuine question when Christians Mm -hmm. and evangelicals ask people that have deconstructed, well, how do you, how do you, why aren't you just out murdering people? You know, um, <laughs> you know, what's keeping you from doing that? And I, I think there's a funny answer to that, which is like, I murder exactly the number of people I want to, which is zero. But I think there also is underneath that maybe an honest question of like, I don't know how to determine right from wrong because I was never taught how to do so. I was taught this is what the rules are. This is what right and wrong is. And without that, I'm adrift. 
And, and I think we've seen that. I mean, we, all three of us are technically, even though we hate the term influencers in the deconstruction space. And we've seen particularly white, particularly male influencers that quote unquote deconstructed purity culture end up becoming all kinds of problematic because they did not actually know how to develop a sexual ethic that was not harmful. And so like a big part of the conversation at this content warning event is now that we're out of purity culture, how do we create sexual ethics? Like, and how do we create inclusive sexual ethics that aren't like, okay, I'm, this is who I am, but there are these people that don't fit. And so we want to bring everyone to the table and try to find a way, how do we develop this in a way that is healthy, that reduces harm and also helps us recover and is inclusive of folks that are, have, you know, different bodies or different sexualities, different gender identities. And so it's not all just straight white folks sitting around in a room trying to figure things out. I feel like trying to figure out where to fit into it. Yeah. Yeah. What a fascinating thing. If I can say that this feels, Megan, very much to me, like there's a theme of the last couple of years for you, which is sort of like realizing that you want to shift things and then looking behind you and seeing who you can bring with you. (laughs) Like, okay, (laughs) this isn't, this is a thing I know I want to do. And I I know I want it to be different. If I'm going to move into the next thing, how can I do it in a way that makes space for other people as well? Like even if leaving teaching wasn't really leaving teaching, you're still helping teachers. Uh, You're just doing it in a different way. It's like, I almost feel like you're opening things up. Okay. If I'm going to look at this thing, if I'm going to deconstruct it, I also want to know where, like, where is everyone else in this? How can we make space for more people? Like even hosting these conversations and cause you guys aren't, there's not, you're not trying to get people anywhere is the feeling, the sense I have. Is that fair to say? Like, yeah, it's not I like mean, you're trying to I, have people land at a certain ethic. It's like, wherever you are, here's an experience beyond where you are. Is that fair to say? Yeah. But, and I also think I kind of joke sometimes that I'm like a deconstruction bartender. Like I just open the doors, turn on the lights and like hope people kind of show up to have the conversation. And that's, I think that's what this really is. Like we have a hard time, even the, the collaborator team and it's been fuzzy. Cause it's like, we could have had every single person that's part of this event, like participants and collaborators all be collaborators because every single time we open the conversation, we're learning from each other. I will never forget at our first meetup, we were having a conversation about um, people that go no contact with their family and like just recognizing, and there was no prescription, but it was just opening up dialogue about like kind of the privilege in like, if you're white and you go no contact with your family because they're racist, like who, who in their lives then is going to be somebody that's anti-racist? Like, I mean, and, mm-hmm. and, and, and there was no prescription, like you aren't allowed to do that. Right. But I remember we we were sitting at tables and we I turned to the person next to me and he was like, I hear everything they're saying. And also my parents were at January 6th, like they were at the rally on January 6th. And so it's like so hard. And and that person was somebody that I met for the first time at the meetup, had like 78 followers on Twitter and is one of my really good friends now. And it's just like those kind of conversations it's like, we just need to turn on the lights and have those conversations. I think about too, like, I I come back to non-monogamy too, just because Cortland is my podcast co-host and he's non-monogamous. And so I have processed so many of my relationships and platonic friendships with Cortland because he has such a unique perspective on relationships and on communication and, and relationship structure and 
relationship agreements. And like non-monogamous folks over-communicate with their partners and, and to a degree where monogamous folks have so much to learn from because there's so much that you just go into relationship and it's just assumed. And it's like, well, actually, like there are so many questions that I have as a monogamous person that I want to like have these conversations with my partner, even if I'm not non-monogamous. And so those are the kinds of things that I, I, again, like going back to without those perspectives, we're just missing out. And so I want to create a space to have as many perspectives as possible so that people can learn, grow and contribute. And we just walk out of, you know, like Justin was saying, with with just maybe a more comprehensive understanding of sexual ethics, too. Yeah, I I mean, my my friendships, my all, all of my relationships have benefited from knowing queer people, knowing trans people, knowing non-monogamous people and having conversations with how they navigate life. Like Mm -hmm. I, I learned something that I never would have learned if I would have just stayed in the, I'm comfortable bubble or the, you know, or the like people, people like me bubble. And so I, I think we all have something to learn from each other, even if even if you don't go there, like there's a lot of others. We, uh, I was having a conversation at theology beer camp where essentially someone was like, well, I, I don't, I'm not non-monogamous. So what do I have to learn from this perspective? And I was like, I feel like you're missing out. And I, and I, and I, I think ultimately the conversation went in a very positive way. But I, I think that the desire is like to try to open it up to like, even if even at the end of the day, you come away and you're like, I don't understand whatever perspective it is. I feel like there's something always to be learned. I think there's a, a thing to growing up or being in an environment that we were at least to some degree at some point where um, we our goal of our, sharing our perspective was to bring people to our perspective. Mm-hmm. And so we only learned um, sharing our perspective as a way of evangelizing. And I think people sometimes think that's the same with a sexual ethic. So I'm here to evangelize you in that way. Um, what I have found is the conversations I've had with folks who have different sexual, you know, ethic or however you want to put it. I think our ethics are similar. I come from a very high consent um, driven uh, background as a Canadian like that. We were learning consent when I was in middle school, but I think there is this sense of you're not asking. I'm not asking you to be the way that I am. I'm not trying to like sell you on non-monogamy people. Um, my non-monogamous friends, my friend always jokes around that I am hopelessly monogamous. And that's true. Like I am, it's just who I am. And in the same way, they are just who they are. Right. Yeah. And so the conversation often is helpful because it's very hard for us to understand perspectives outside of our own if we're not in conversation with people. And I think that's true because, you know, like I said, it's fascinating to me, Megan, because I feel like your story is one of sort of like transcending and including, you know, I'm always talking about that Richard Rohr thing because it rocks my world, but like, yeah, I can, I can go forward, but I'm going to bring these things with me. And I'd love to ha- talk to other folks around this stuff. I, I'm curious. Well, I'm curious about a lot of things, but I'm curious about what happened to your memoir. Like what happened to Megan's original memoir? What happened to it? it, it that's such an interesting question. I, I want to get to that, but there's one other thing I want to say about this is that I feel yeah. like in society, and I think it's probably patriarchy and it's probably white supremacy, but we have this whole notion that books written by cis straight white men 
are books for everyone and books written by women are books for women and books written by trans folks are books for trans folks. And so this is something that I'm like, I think about how much I've learned, just like Justin was saying. And and so this is something that I'm trying to like debunk, right? Is and and one thing that I'll just say about that is I was reading Paula Stone Williams' memoir about transitioning genders at 60 years old when I was 40, coming out as bi leaving my marriage and feeling like I'm, I'm too old to have changed. And she was 60, <laughs> like going, like change, transitioning genders. And I felt so much permission to be myself mm. and love authentically from that, from that experience of reading her book. And so I, I just, there's so many stories out there that resonate, whether it's the exact same experience or not. So I just wanted to say that, but my memoir has gone through a lot of different iterations. And I feel like there's probably some kind of like stages of deconstruction that I I don't know exactly, but I think I went from like hating it and wanting to burn it to like peeking at it every once in a while and being like, huh. And now I feel like I've gone into a phase of like, there, there was a Megan that that was, you know, that's, that that's a person that I was It, it rem- like, it's kind of like Derek Webb when he plays some of his old stuff, he'll say like, I, the way I approach this is I'm like covering the previous version of myself like you know and so I I just yeah yeah. so I mean I feel like I there were things that happened in my life that shaped who I am now and that I I, I'm not going to dismiss or I'm not going to you know hate and so it's just taken a lot of healing to get there so I probably will write a book someday I don't know what it will be it won't be that book it could be you know, deconstructing that book, it could be something else entirely different. I've tried a couple different ideas, but for now, it's 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 on a shelf with a blue cover cardstock that I printed from Office Depot. It has a spiral bound, and sometimes I look at it, and most of the time I don't. Oh, I love it. I love it. Well, Megan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for sharing a little bit of your story. I know um, there's so much to it, and if you want to learn more, you are one of the people speaking at or part of the panel, right? I am. So at, yeah, you can check that out yeah. at contentwarningevent.com and I'm at The Pursuing Life everywhere else. The Pursuing Life, yes. So The Pursuing Life and the podcast that uh, she's a part of is called Thereafter and it's a fantastic podcast. And so uh, anything else that you'd like to say, Megan, before we close out for the day? No, just thanks for having me. This was a fun conversation. Oh, it's so fun. Thank you so much. Justin, anything you want to say? Uh, no, uh, other than, actually, no, sorry. I always say no. And then I'm like, actually, there is something I want to say, <laughs> which is this particular event content warning. I do want to just remind folks too, that if you're like, oh, I don't, I don't, I can't fly out there. I can't, I can't be there. There, there are online options uh, that are, that allow for full participation. So part of the commitment is to make it fully accessible to anyone, including anyone in any place. So um, if you have an internet connection, uh, you can definitely sign up. And so all of those options are available at contentwarningevent.com. So uh, definitely check it out. And the, and the right, number thanks, of collaborators that um, Megan has managed to pull together is pretty amazing, quite honestly. Uh, so it's uh, it'll be great. Um, my other uh, co-host on my other podcast, uh, Go Home Bye We're Drunk, is going to be a contributor as well. And so, yeah, it's really exciting. I love it. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us. Have a great week, guys. And we will check in with you. Well, next week or maybe not, because we're we're recording around the holidays. We'll see what happens. Yeah, we'll see. We may see you. We'll see. We may not. We may. <laughs> we may not. All right. You just have to wait. All right. Bye. All right. Thanks.
Thank you for listening to this week's episode. If you are enjoying the conversations you hear on RevCovery, you can continue the conversation with us and many more incredible people in the RevCovery room on Discord. To access our Discord, please join our Patreon to become part of the RevCovery room community. You can join for as little as $4 a month, and this helps us produce the show as well as gives you access to the community resources. Check it out at www.patreon.com slash revcovery. We know that not everyone is able to financially support the show, but there are lots of ways to support us, including giving us a five-star review wherever you're listening right now. And make sure to like and subscribe across all social media. Revcovery Room is our Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook handle, so you can find us there to keep the conversation going. Now on to some final thoughts and this week's poem. Friends, thanks again for sticking around for the quote at the end. Today's quote had to come from an educator after speaking uh, to Megan about education and why that holds so much importance for her. So this is from Paulo Freire, um, and this is from The Pedagogy of the Oppressed, and he is a Brazilian educator, advocate, and author. And he talks a lot about this idea of a lot of his writing is about how do we make sure that folks aren't oppressed, and, and a lot of that is about education and knowledge. And so I thought this kind of uh, went along with our conversation. So here it is. For apart from inquiry, apart from the praxis, individuals cannot be truly human. Knowledge emerges only through invention and reinvention. Through the restless, impatient, continuing, hopeful inquiry human beings pursue in the world, with the world, and with each other. Made me think a lot about Megan and pursuing life. So, friends, thank you so much for listening, and we can't wait to catch you next week. First Corinthians warned you about the women with a loud mouth, and this podcast is just that. Here at the Speaking in Church podcast, we talk all about the regular people and the things that regularly happen to them in the evangelical church. It's a podcast about change. It's a podcast about seeking moral high ground. And it's a podcast for people who are just trying to deconstruct on the safe side. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to be a guest, yes, you, regular person, you can be a guest on the Speaking in Church podcast. If you want to come on, just let us know.